0: Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey, everyone. How's it going out there? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Liste. I am here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I hope everything's okay out there. I have a great episode for you today. My guest is Jennifer Michael Hecht, author of The Wonder Paradox, Embracing the Weirdness of Existence and the Poetry of Our Lives.
1: I found everywhere that people doubted religion, they came up with other reasons to live, other ways to see meaning. And that has, in some way, that, that's one of the, the reasons that I, that I wrote this book. All the things I've ever studied and researched and worked on, which sometimes felt very different and separate, are absolutely culminated in this book. And it's an extraordinary experience for me to feel like I, I said the thing. I, I got. I, I managed to express something I was chasing in so many different directions.
0: All right, that was Jennifer Michael Hecht, author of The Wonder Paradox, available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. This is Jennifer's second time on the program. The first time we spoke was all the way back in 2013 in episode 238, back when she was celebrating the publication of her wonderful book entitled stay a history of suicide and the philosophies against it in her new book the wonder paradox jennifer combines elements of philosophy spirituality autobiography and poetry this is a book that is written for those of us who perhaps do not participate in organized religion, but who nevertheless would like to find some magic and some peace and some connection in our lives and to find a way to celebrate moments and milestones meaningfully with a sense of reverence and joy and awe. Jennifer Michael Heck makes a persuasive argument that poetry can be used to bridge the divide, helping us to Adapt old traditions and make them into something new and more relevant and perhaps even more meaningful. I had a great talk with Jennifer Michael Hecht. That is coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by Mariner Books, publisher of the novel Homecoming by New York Times bestselling author Kate Morton. Homecoming is an epic story that begins with a shocking crime and it asks, what we would do for those we love and how we protect the lies. We tell it explores the power of motherhood, the corrosive effects of tightly held secrets and the healing nature of truth. Above all, it is a beguiling and immensely satisfying novel from one of the finest writers working today. That's homecoming, the new novel by Kate Morton. It is on sale April 4th, 2023 available from Mariner books. The other people podcast is offered freely every episode of this show, more than 800 conversations and counting. All of it is available to listeners free of charge. There are no paywalls on this show because we don't like paywalls. Paywalls are disfavorable. And so I'm hoping like, here's the gambit. I'm making the show available freely but I'm hoping that people who listen regularly and who like the show and get something from it and find value in it, I'm hoping that those people will support the show. And you can do so for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com otherpplpod other PPL pod. That's patreon, p a com slash other PPL pod for as little as a dollar a month. I've tried to make it as easy as possible. I want it to be a no brainer. I want it to be painless. It's a sliding scale, $1 a month, $3, $5, 10 20 whatever you can afford. And as you move up the scale, you can get merchandise, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a book club subscription, and so on and so forth over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. I would be grateful for your support. If you would like to get other people merchandise, a t-shirt or a sweatshirt or what have you, Just go to the show's official website, otherppl.com. Scroll down, look for the t-shirt. You can't miss it. If you would like to receive my once a week email newsletter, you can sign up for that at either otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. Either site, same newsletter. It's once a week. It is essentially a bunch of links. I send you an enumerated list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So it's simple. It's straightforward. It's once a week. Sign up for that. It's also free. So go get the newsletter if that sounds good. I would appreciate it if you would take a couple of minutes to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to this podcast. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever it is, give the show a rating. If it's possible to write a review, that would be great too. It helps new listeners find the show. It helps the show in the algorithm. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. If you have feedback, you can email me. The address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. And if you would like to read my new novel, I have a book out. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is my third book. It is a work of autofiction available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so I'll read it to you. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Go get it if you would like to know more about my existence. So my guest, once again, is Jennifer Michael Hecht. Her new book is called The Wonder Paradox, embracing the weirdness of existence and the poetry of our lives. It is available now from Farrar Strauss and Giroux. Jennifer Michael Hecht is a historian and a poet based in New York City. She is the award-winning and best-selling author of several books, including Doubt, Stay, The Happiness Myth, and The End of the Soul. Her poetry books include Who Said? The Next Ancient World and a collection called Funny. I am very happy to have Jennifer Michael Hecht back on this program to talk about her new book. So, let's get to it, shall we? Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is my conversation with Jennifer Michael Hecht. And her new book, One More Time, is called The Wonder Paradox.
1: In the book The Wonder Paradox, what I'm saying is that religion is one of the main places that people spend time with the weird, the absurd, with wonder and awe. And we can do that outside of religion. So I'm looking at the paradoxes that we can live with throughout the book that we do live with, just the fact that we're ambitious mortals. That's a crazy paradox. You know, why should something that died be so <laughs> be so ambitious? But the wonder paradox is really my favorite, which is that, you know, I love the consciousness paradox, but the wonder paradox is one step further. How could we have evolved material minds in a material world That's the consciousness paradox, which we can talk more about. But the one step farther, that we would find it awesome. That we would not only be able to look up at the sky and see that white stripe of stars, and in a couple of millennia, figure out that it is the Milky Way, that we are looking sideways at the arm of our spiral galaxy. That is extraordinary. But the idea that perhaps the first words ever spoken were, whoa looking up at that sky, and that we still make these noises of wow. That wow is a paradox. That the that the being could have evolved and be so impressed with itself and its world is just so strange and wonderful. And it's the one that I think demands that there be a poetry section in our minds next to the science one and the religion one because something like love doesn't really fit in either of those other ones
0: so yeah i feel like this book is maybe the most direct combination of your primary interests and impulses as a writer it's 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 poetry plus the spiritual, plus philosophy, plus some history. I might be missing something, but as, uh, a, yeah. as an atheist and as, a, as you describe yourself, a poetic realist, I believe. Yep. This is an attempt to sort of reconstitute a person's approach to the big things in life. Moments of deep happiness, moments of shame, moments of grief moments of celebration. I mean, you break it out into, I don't know how many chapters. 20. Couple, 20. Okay. So yeah. And it's a way for people like yourself, like me, who might be disaffected when it comes to organized religion and yet still hungering for community, uh, still wanting to make meaning in deep and and significant ways, still needing to obviously grapple with human suffering and all that comes with it. And maybe missing some of the community and ritual that gets lost when we lose religion. Yeah. And so, this is kind of a handbook for people like that, of whom I think there are many and increasingly many in this world. Yeah. Uh, I, I have to believe that you might view this book as a, a kind of the culmination of something, or yes. at least the combination of something. It really does bring together all that you've been doing yeah. as a writer and a thinker for your career.
1: It's an amazing. Combination of passions that I had that were separate for a long time. I mean, in doubt, I have a lot of poems. I I have and, you know- and just just I
0: don't mean to interrupt, but I, I want to make sure that listeners stay oriented. Doubt is a book that you published about twenty years ago, and it's about right. being a person who doubts the validity of religion or just no.
1: Just- it's a very historical book that starts from the ancient world and covers philosophical and religious doubt all over the world throughout time it's a big fat history book and and it's basically like seeing a map upside down i i privilege those periods that are usually thought of as chaotic because i'm not interested in when everybody's thinking the exact same thing it's in those periods usually when the middle class is doing really well and there's a lot of trade and education people start meeting people from other places and they just doubt the the dogmas they grew up with and so doubt is really looking at these wonderful periods where everything's thrown into question and yeah, I thought it was gonna be basically a history of atheism, but it really turned into a history of how doubt creates new religions. That is all are we almost. at a
0: period are we in a period of great doubt right now, do you feel like in terms Absolutely. of like how do you yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same kind of situation. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean there are there it depends where you look, but what what I was amazed by was there was no dark age where there was no doubt anywhere. The, the Muslim world was in a golden age of religious doubt and atheism and incredible poems and philosophy written about the subject, which the Renaissance wouldn't have happened if the Arab world hadn't done what it was doing during what we used to call the Middle Ages dark age. Um, it certainly was a period of low literacy in Europe. But yeah, it, I, I found atheism all over the world throughout history and uh, yeah it's a big book and I found everywhere that people doubted religion they came up with other reasons to live other ways to see meaning and that has in some way that that's one of the the reasons that that I wrote this book but just as you say, all the things i've ever studied and researched and worked on which sometimes felt very different and separate are absolutely culminated in this book and it's an extraordinary experience for me to feel like i i said the thing i i, I got i i managed to express something i was chasing in so many different directions yeah it's quite a and-
0: it took a long time to write compared to your other books, right? It sure did,
1: yeah. I sort of almost wrote it over and over, throwing out drafts and figuring it out as I went. I, I, For one thing, I thought that each chapter would have a lot of poems in it because I I didn't have the personal authority to choose a single one when I started this book. Um, and by the end, I I knew that it was fine for me to choose one and show how it worked and I was happy
0: I I was happy for the curation as a reader I was like great give me a poem because like uh, you know I I, I think like you say in the book it's not really that important to find just the right poem that's right just find one Mm -hmm. that you like that is representative or useful in a situation where you want to express gratitude or you want to like bless a meal and enjoy a meal and express gratitude for the meal or You want to get good sleep whatever it is there's all these different life circumstances and situations that you're laying out for people and this book reads like a kind of instructional or a handbook for the formerly religious or the never religious or the disaffected in some way but people who might like we were saying miss that certain aspects of it and then feel a little bit embarrassed by the fact that they do and you're saying it's okay like you can you can pick the things you like Yep. And combine them in a new way and make your own yeah. path with this stuff.
1: Yeah. And I think I, I don't even, you know, I encourage people to to remove from any of the religious stuff anything that they don't like. But if you're having a wedding or a baby celebration or a funeral, there are other people involved. And I don't, I'm not one of the people who feels nothing I don't believe in can be said at my thing. I just feel like I feel like it's good to keep other people happy. It's good. It's in those moments. Be kind and be, be open. But make sure there's something said that makes you feel like you are on top of the world, that the idea of marriage is the most amazing, sacred, natural, sacred thing you could do, that raising a child is the greatest adventure you could go. You need that poem in that moment and it's better if you have it already for a bunch of reasons. For one, poems only mean so much the first time you read them, and you read them over and over, and they mean more and more, and then they start to mean other things, and then 10 years in, you realize you (laughs) totally missed one of the lines that now you realize, oh, this love poem always had this terrible sadness in it, I'm still being taken care of by this poem even though the love disappeared things like that happen all the time
0: so what let's for listeners I'd be curious to hear you talk about uh, a specific way in which you yourself use the methodology that you're laying out in this book like can you give an example of uh, like a particular situation in your life where you'll combine ritual and poetry and maybe aspects of the religion that you came up in, or some, or religions that you've uh, absorbed in your adult life, and sure made it new.
1: You know, there are different things that that come to mind, and uh, people do ask me this question, and I always find myself weirdly unprepared for it. But because I guess I live in so much poetry that it's like hard for me. Personally, and I make this point in the book that there are other people who, if you're a poetry professor, you probably don't need to single these out. They're probably already coming at you in these moments. But you know, I maybe it's obvious by the fact that I've written this is my eighth book. Some people are set out into the world with those that combination of things that makes you put work above everything else in in a certain mad way, and I think. Well, what I'm trying to say is sometimes I go for a walk and Emily Dickinson's, I'm nobody, who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Don't tell, they'd advertise, you know. How dreary to be somebody, how public like a frog to croak one's name the live long day to an admiring bog. Now this little poem- And
0: you you say this out loud as you're passing the person? (laughs) Ha ha!
1: a good idea. I should start assaulting people.
0: <laughs> yeah. In New
1: York, I'm not sure we would notice the difference. I'm nobody. Who are you? Uh no, I think that she wrote it for me and I'm in communion with Emily Dickinson when I think of it. I don't ask myself to think of it because it is the sound of my footsteps sometimes clicks in. I'm nobody. Who are you? Who are you So that one is something that I'll take on a walk with me. The book uh Changed some of the things I do because, for the most part, I encourage people to just do the rituals they already do—religious rituals if those are there. Though I do say, you know, don't let it be more religious than you want it to be. Um, and I certainly don't want anybody to force any ritual on anybody else, especially kids. Like, let them do what they want. Invite, but I mostly say do the rituals you're already doing—family, personal, religious, country but I make up a few and I also tell people, give some, some pointers about how to make them up because it's really best if you're super simple and base it on what you're already doing with just a little enhancement because you feel silly. It's really hard to keep these things up.
0: That's one of them. I reasons. was going to say, because yeah. that's a question I had as I was reading. I was like, wow, I love this. And I would love to maybe like institute or use some of this stuff with my family, with my kids so that we have like a better sense of, Or, like, a more defined sense of big moments, you know, especially with the poems. And yet, and yet, (laughs) I was trying to imagine, like, busting out a poem at Christmas in front of my family. It'd be like, you know, it would take some getting used to. But I think, like, that's just that part of the process, right?
1: It's part of the process. It's also true that there are people who have poems. As already as part of holidays, and sometimes they they're not crazy about the poems. It sort of came with the holiday at some point, and I see them finding it sort of easier to swap out. People who had some sort of silly prayer before a meal are more comfortable switching it with something more contemplative.
0: I I gotta say, I gotta say, I'm sorry, Mm. but like you just hit you just hit like a nerve with me. Like in my family, we've always said uh, I was raised Catholic. It was like, bless us, O Lord, and these. Our gifts, which we were about to receive through the bounty of Christ our Lord, and I'm always like, I mean, I get it, but like Christ gave us the food. I just, I'm like, yeah. can we just update this? Yeah, yeah, this yeah. This isn't meaning much to me, and it's always bothered me. I, we don't say it in my family with my kids, you know, but uh, we say it sometimes when we're with family, and I'm just like, man, can't we find something new? Isn't right. there like a an updated version? But I guess there's also a case to be made for tradition or something. I think like that's an interesting question that your book it is. is playing with. It's like, there's a frustration for people like you and I, I think, who are less organized religion with how static and slow moving, a lot of the and dogmatic sure. a lot of these um, traditions can be. And then I also can understand this notion that having a sense of tradition and deeply rooted ritual can be a great comfort yeah. and can be something worth sustaining. So yeah. it's like interesting to navigate the tension between this desire to evolve and change and make it new versus this desire to keep it old.
1: That's <laughs> right. And, and I think, look, I I've, I wanted to speak to a lot of people across a lot of different feelings. You know, the first words of, of the book proper are, I, I was raised an atriist, uh, a New York anti-arboreal coven, uh, coven god i do that wrong all the time which one i don't know is it, is it
0: coven or coven I, i'm the same way let's
1: can we cut the coven or coven because i'll just <laughs> die if it's okay but it's a um what I, I i call myself an atreist in the beginning of the book as a joke because i'm an atheist but i called an atreist because i i was thinking about how when i was growing up not having a Christmas tree was like a major part of Judaism you know it, it, it's it's not what anybody would have said but when I look back on my Jewish identity, we didn't have that many demonstrative things that we did we had some but not having that Christmas tree was really a fundamental thing and the whole book that I've written is about the atreist idea perhaps being, minimized a little, that these rituals sometimes feel like they hold a tremendous amount of meaning. For us not having a Christmas tree, if we'd had one, it would have, literally, it was about the Holocaust. We were close enough in time. It was the idea that if we made Judaism less visible, we would be hurting something that, six million of our people died for. I mean, the feeling that, you know, we we were here and our entire extended family in Europe was wiped out. And we know how in some ways, you know, in some instances. So it felt really important. But I've grown up to feel that a tree is a happy thing. And having a Christmas tree in the house is not Necessarily an anti Jewish thing. I don't press on it in the book because I think that there are still a lot of Jews out there who feel very strongly about that as part of identity. I'm just trying to be playful a little bit with the idea that these identities really change decade by decade, generation by generation, and we have an illusion that they don't, that whatever our parents taught us is the tradition. And and we have an illusion that our grandparents believed everything our parents taught us, which is not the case when you check in. A lot of times they were wild or different or not religious at all. And you go back in time and everything changes. It has to, you simply can't avoid certain things or eat certain things. If you move to a new place, they don't have it. Things change and they change by what, people think they don't people don't always know they're changing things it's just whatever you think is the most important part of or most desirable part of whatever you've been taught and you re- reproduce that and it can turn into a whole new language over time and place so i'm trying to show people that religions change and that means even if you're outside religion in your mind in a way you're still interpreting the humanist and Abrahamic traditions and you have as much right to as anybody else in this long story, maybe more, you have a lot of information, you know, where you are in the universe and you're not likely lying to your children about where they are in the universe. We have enough information to not have to have superstition, to notice how strange everything is and to see that we can enjoy it and to not let, you know, if you have, A God and you assign the idea that all meaning is generated by this God, then you lose the God, you think you lost meaning. But if the God never existed, the meaning has always been here. The meaning is the meaning that we feel. The the feeling of meaning is sufficient to the definition of meaning, just as the feeling of love is sufficient to the definition of love. It's a real thing. We have it. And we, we are also part of a long human tradition that is extraordinary and beautiful and heartbreaking. And it is going to go on. It is true that global warming is going to mess things up and be miserable. It is true that we have all sorts of reasons to think we might not last 200 years. But my guess is, That they will still be doing Shakespeare in the Park in two hundred years. That we are part of a continuing beautiful story, and that's what the meaning is, and that's enough to carry us.
0: Well, I was going to say, like, uh, you know, I just to go back to the Christmas tree thing. I was, I keep thinking about it. I'm like, well, you know, I'm kind of a ex Catholic, and we get a Christmas tree every year, and I don't attach any christian meaning to it at all it's just a pretty thing you hang lights on it's right. a tradition part of the sea right. it's almost seasonal
1: my husband was raised catholic and quite frankly he's the one who makes sure we do all the hanukkah nights and i'm the one who usually says oh, let's put up the tree it's pretty <laughs> right. because he's the he's an ex-catholic and, well, I just want my kids to have a happy thing. Life is hard. You know, let's have a oh. have a pretty weird thing that goes on, especially since, hey, they have it in their history. Like, we had decided, John and I, to raise the children Jewish atheists at the beginning. But it, really, more I studied, the less I, I was intense about any specifics on that. And, yeah, what I'm trying to say is John came out of that Christian the Catholic world, with some anger that they had taught him such a uh, a not true world, you know, sure. to, to have to realize in your teens and early twenties the extent to which the whole universe of saints and and uh, sins and hell and all of that layer by layer to have to uncover that, and that's not something that being raised in in Judaism did to did to one. It, you didn't get any false information other than. That there was God up there, um, which I decided there wasn't at about 12. But I wanted to finish answering one other thing real quick that you'd asked uh, okay. about rituals. And I, I kept giving the intro that I tell people to do the ones they already do. And I show them how to make up some new ones. One of the new ones that I made up that I love the best and that has changed my life is the sacraments of misery. I, <laughs> I made up the idea that, look, we were in the depression chapter, I I I'm I met someone once the first story is when I met this undergraduate who mentioned these little icons she has on a window and that it's she was she was ex catholic or in any case the, she'd heard about saints that's what it is she's secondary to catholicism and she had these little statues and i was thinking about that and how most religions really most give you toys to play with very sacred ones or playful ones you know you could have a statue on your dashboard that's not thought of as terribly holy other ones that you would treat as if they were someone you loved, right? A whole range of things to play with. So I, I thought about how I'm just a bit of a magpie, as are most of the people in my family. And so you just end up with pretty things that I don't even know where they come from. But, you know, like uh, I I made a little collection and I suggested other people make a small collection of a few things. Mine were a, a, a plate one of the spheres from uh, one of the circles from an old uh, kaleidoscope that I had that broke. I had it for years. One was a Labradorite carved heart. Another was uh, a little old, uh, you know, an ancient little skull one one was a a little saint figure and one was the bee that was in the card catalog box I found when I started putting these items into the card catalog box which I decided would be my special place I suggest to people find a box or a bag find some things you love little things that are beautiful to play with little brass bell and put put them in and only take them out when you're miserable put them by your bed
0: like a misery box. A
1: misery box. Stuff you get to play <laughs> with only when you're miserable. You can make a tableau and take a photograph of it. You can just, you own, and, and I tried it out. I wouldn't have told anybody to do I'm not a very wacky person, but I'm as wacky as most people in some ways. When it gets down to it, when you need something, you go to something, you want to do something, light a candle, do a thing. And for me, I found this was really nice i found the fact that at some point i'd feel better and i put them away and i could see that they were put away i knew i felt better and i knew they were there for me and i i i i have to say right now a few of them have migrated out of the box again and are at large in the house and <laughs> when i see them they're not just items anymore they're not they, they're
0: imbued with meaning
1: they got a little sacred they got a little sacred and and the sacred even in etymology. I don't rehabilitate the word spiritualism in the book. I feel like um nobody knows what it means. Right? We use it when we mean sort of poetic, but a lot of people say not any woo, not any mystical, but you know, the spiritual right. side of life. Well, poetic is a much easier way of doing that. Again, I could have said art, but there's a reason, you know, poetry poetry itself slots in where prayer was but i do mean all of art and if music or painting or dance are extraordinarily more persuasive to you about the transcendent the the those feelings those transcendental feelings of being at one with everyone of of feeling that things matter a feeling that you understand and that you're at peace those come rarely but if you can set up the conditions they come more if music is it for you, do music. It's just that poetry also has words and words are such a benefit when you're trying to communicate. So I, I, that's why, where I land, but I really do mean all of art.
0: I was just, I was just trying to, I was trying to imagine myself. Uh, incorporating dance into our Christmas tree ritual. I don't think that's going to (laughs) happen. No, that's not.
1: But you, there are people (laughs) who go to dance, to watch dance, um, to feel uplifted, to feel people use the human body to move outside what the body can normally do and to express in that way. It's something that I've experienced, but it's not my go-to. Music is more music. I, I feel, there's no question, music's better than poetry in terms of getting you all the way to that place real fast. It's just, there aren't words there. And the music tends to be, no matter how extraordinary it is, afterwards, you want to talk to somebody and say, oh my God, didn't that just blow you away? Well, that's the poetry. And poetry has some music in it. But I'm certainly not saying only poetry. I'm saying the poetics of everything. And, and, and I'm saying that As much as I am encouraging people to actually read poems, because that's where you're going to find paradox and weirdness and changing perspective by someone showing you the large and the small and the meaningful and the unmeaningful all in one condensed little box that blows your mind for a second. But I'm also really saying that we need the the term and the idea of the poetic. We need to be able to say, I want to live a poetic life in which terms I can talk about virtue and and the good and privileging love on principle, privileging honesty on principle. Where are these principles coming from? Well, in the post religious world you get to decide. I have I have two chapters that I've one that's on morality and one that's on a code poem. So I think that um I'll just speak to the code poem now. There are poems that give a little bit of a statement about how to live. There are ones that are complex, you know, that say, do this and do this and do this, or I do this and I do this and I do this. And remember... If you ever feel like a poet's telling you what to do, most of the time, poets are just talking to themselves. They're just trying to remember what to do. They're not <laughs> telling you anything. Sure. And nobody would come up with anything unless they were struggling with it. You just couldn't. It, it's not possible in poetry to write a good poem, faking it, trying to be didactic. The good poem always comes because you're struggling to get there yourself. And there are poems that that tell you, that that say, I choose helping people even if no problem is in front of me. Other poems which say, I choose the good, but I'm going to try to keep peace. And if a problem doesn't come to me, I'm not going to go looking for it. Those are two good ideas. And sometimes it's helpful to have decided who you are before that problem comes along. You know, Maybe yeah. you know, at least as a guidepost, as at least as something to bounce off of.
0: Well, I, I find it so helpful. Like I find a good poem, especially like and I think what you're advocating for makes a lot of sense. It's better to like have the poem before you need it. Yeah than to need it than to have to go looking for yeah. it. Because you if you're gonna if you really need it and things are not going well, you might not have the resources, the That's inner right. resources to go find it. But it's just such a concentrated form of thought and feeling. That's right. And a really good poem is for me usually a distillation of some deep complexity yeah and so it like it makes so much sense to me that we would want to use these things and just to at these certain times
1: to make sure that you that you reread rereading is really important and and you can almost say you know yeah I want to reread a poem on christmas because every christmas I read it and I feel slightly different about it. And it shows me who I am and where I've been. Um, And it tells me that it's Christmas and it tells me how long spring is, all those things. But also you can look at it another way and say, I'd like to read this poem once a year. I think it's good for my soul to actually read this poem once a year. I don't use the word soul in the book. (laughs) I use sacred because sacred comes from the word treaty. It predates religious. and And it is in the same way that I gave meaning to these, to these objects it's about you know the sacred the word sacred came from the word treaty we have to imagine from a state of we made a treaty and it worked let's we're going to use that word again if we ever want to try peace again with somebody who we killed their brother they killed ours how are we ever going to stop the killing we hate each other well, we did once, remember that time? We stopped the killing with a treaty. We made these noises. We said these things. You can, you, you can make something sacred by using it in a special way. And then you can carry the specialness with you, with that object. It just works. It just is. And it, it's part of what being a human being is. But again, Uh, As much as the individual poems are important and as much as the book is about explaining how poems work and how to have fun with them, I'm also advocating something which one doesn't have to do at all, which is to just try to remember that when you're reading a poem, you are or going to an art museum or going into nature or being with your loved ones, you're you're doing something that's all connected, the poetic part of your life, and you're you're taking care of it, and it's going to take care of you. And importantly, I made up this term. Sort of, uh, I laughed when I thought of it, but I kept it. The interfaithless. What does that mean? The interfaithless are all of us out here who feel connected to each other. The inter is the important part. You know, I was trying to say, look, there's a lot of people. We all have different religions that we might come from but don't believe in them anymore. So the interfaith movement of my youth was a big thing. It was sort of uh, the interfaith movement was very much animated by World War II, where we wanted Christians of Catholic, Protestant, and Jewish to feel like they all had the same God, which they didn't. Just as you hear Allah and you think different God, we did not have the sense that there was a Judeo-Christian God. There was a Catholic God, Protestant God. I mean, there was even that Quentin Crisp... uh, Back in the 40s, he goes to Ireland and they say, we know you're an atheist, but in which God do you not believe? They needed to know if he was a Protestant or a Catholic and they don't care. They want to know which God you don't believe in. So right. so that interfaithless movement was really about getting these, these three religions that we now think of as so close to feel that way. Partially so Christians, Protestants wouldn't feel stupid for having let all their... Money and boys die in World War Two, essentially, in one sense saving the Jews, in another sense, saving Catholic countries. And so it was it was about that interfaith movement. Well, what about the interfaithless? What about all right. of us out here who love yeah. art and love and meaning and are trying to make the world we 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 are working for a better world that we may that we won't see in many, you know, that we're forward we have these big feelings and yeah, the idea that the interfaithless could feel a little connected to each other and to know that even in a pandemic, when we're probably doing this stuff alone, there is no alone. We're always bouncing off the same culture and we know that each other is out there. Why not let it feel a little like a congregation? Why not let it feel like a community? Because we do love each other when, when push comes to shove, we, we do.
0: Well, yeah. And I, I I would say I would even expand it. Like I, cause I, I'm sure you probably have some sense of this too, as somebody who was raised Jewish and then sort of mutated. Uh, I was raised Catholic and mutated. And I think earlier in my life, I was more prone to be angry about it, you know, kind of like late adolescence, early adulthood, but I would even identify as Catholic on some Mm -hmm. level now. That's that's the tradition I was raised in. You're a Jew. You know, you were, that's an ethnic, is that a, I mean, that's like a
1: yeah, That's Jew is diff- is is tricky because we we are an ethnic group. So so I, I you know, I had my DNA tested and I'm 100% Ashkenazi Jew. You can see a little bit where we wandered around, but and you know, I decided to mix up the bloodline a little bit because it was getting a little a little little, <laughs> little dense.
0: But um, the the point that I want to make, the point yeah. that I want to make is that like this sense of connection and this yeah. interfaithless connection yeah. and this love that we have for one another or this feeling of like we're all in this together. I feel that not only with people who, like me, are unsure. That's how I would define myself. I just don't know. Ah. And, you mean you don't you know, know whether there's a God? I just don't know what the hell's going on. So, I feel okay. like I sense I it's like, like a it, humble. That's fun. It's like, yeah. yeah, like humble posture. Just a like, hey, posture this is crazy. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I,
1: I I find the arguments about agno- agnosticism to be philosophically sort of unsound. It, it it sort of just shines a certain kind of logical skepticism only at this one question. But if you if you're making decisions about your life, the decision about whether, as many have said, a, a purple teapot is floating just behind. What you can see, you you can say no. That's not happening. I know enough about the world to say I can tell the difference between, especially when nonsense has a good delusion. It's not just delusion; it's delusion when you can see the human desire behind uh, something that is fundamentally silly,
0: like like believing in God, like thinking there's like a sky god. Well, you
1: mean? yes, but I, I'll be real careful about that because. What I discovered when I was writing Doubt twenty years ago is that throughout history there are atheists who who concentrate on the fables of religion and say how could Jesus have turned water into wine or how could the Red Sea part. There are other ones who say who, who take on faith that that is all that there are religious people who do not believe most of the supernatural stuff. They really believe that God is love. And when I talk to them, there are people who say they believe in God and we cannot find any daylight between what we believe. We believe the same things. right? I need to say I don't believe in God because the God people won't define him in any particular way, and I won't use a word like that. I mean, if God is love, I'll use love because the God version of it Comes with the possibility of active doing, of active thinking, but I'm not talking about any of that. And usually these people aren't either, but they might use that meaning when they need it, right? But truth means too much to me. Truth means everything to me. And for me, science is only one part of truth. It's a part that I believe in the way science people believe in it, but I just also am more, I'm talking about. I won't even say more interested, but what my life's work is, is talking about the real, though incredibly strange and unbelievable experience of being a human being. I mean, I mentioned the consciousness paradox. You and I are talking, even though we are, forget the technology, we, are, we have this squishy gray meat in a bone bowl. And it's somehow conscious and doing things. (laughs) I mean, it made all of Shakespeare's plays and every drop of music that was ever made was made by a gray, squishy thing that eventually rotted and stank. What? What? How? I I could spend a thousand years in a lab with all the technology in the world, and I couldn't do what my dumb body did twice make human right. eyes, make human brains. The right. the weirdness of a complex, extraordinary human being coming into the world and doing all this stuff and then totally disappearing. These are paradoxes of experience. Uh, the book talks about a lot of different paradoxes. But as I've said many times, I'm much... I, I, I find... Consciousness much more paradoxical, much stranger than virgin birth. Virgin birth is nothing. So an egg decides to divide a bunch of times. It somehow creates <laughs> Jesus. Big deal. I can imagine it. Right. Right? But this is thought from meat. Thought from meat. And not just thought. Everything. Everything human beings have done. All of it was done incrementally in teeny bits most of the time by balls of squishy meat. Many times didn't last more than 40, 50 years. It's, it's a paradox because it feels, uh, look, there's no real definition for paradox other than two things that can't both be true, but are both true. That, that's what we say. But of course, you can water it down and end up with things that aren't quite as strong, real. You know, you could say, oh, that's not a paradox. I can explain it. But you can also explain everything away and then what are you left with? So I am using a poetic term of paradox. And I am saying that we are surrounded by it. We are living it. We are it. We should be amazed all the time. And we can control those conditions and make ourselves amazed more often. If we live in the country, we're probably amazed and taken care of in many ways by the natural world. And if we live in the city, we're probably taken care of to some degree by art. But both these things don't do the same things. If you if you live a very urban, modern life, death seems like a real glitch in the product, you know? But if you live in the forest, you, you know that all anything is, is death and life and death and life and death and life. You don't feel like it is outrageously unfair the way it feels when you're not surrounded by it. The, the the human world has tried to protect ourselves from death. You know, even the meat we eat comes in these cellophane packages and we don't die at home anymore. All these different ways. But then death comes anyway and you get really, really clobbered by it. Um, and you try to explain it away, and you try to get away from it, but again, different ways of living uh, protect you from different things. But you, 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 all of this is just a matter of becoming conscious of it. It all just—that's uh, been my experience.
0: Have you ever? Have you ever done psychedelics?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure.
0: Has that been because the, the stuff that you're talking about, like the weirdness of life, yes. this language, like some of the language resonates with me. Yeah,
1: I haven't in many years, but it totally influenced me and. I've never taught a philosophy course without mentioning it.
0: Yeah. It feels like a common experience for people who have done them. It's not like super defined. You don't walk away with some like defined set of answers, but you do come away with a sense of wonder, I find, and a sense of humility like the gr- the yep. grand scale of things and the yeah. deep weirdness of things right
1: and also becomes... love i hope you got came away from it with that sense sure. of because you lose you, you lose your sense of separateness you become you feel a little one with everything and uh yeah i i was I, I think I stopped by the time I was in college. I'm, uh, it's a little embarrassing, maybe, but I, in high school, that we didn't have much to do on Long Island, especially in the winters. Uh, yeah. So yeah, we did um, <laughs> drugs. Uh, but um, yeah, mushrooms. And and I'm talking about, what is 25 years ago of looking at, uh, and I, I loved it. i just doing different things with my life now, but um, I wouldn't rule it out. But uh, yeah, the experience just once even of having that, feeling that you could be at one with everything. But I also push it a little farther and say, if you've ever had a hallucination that was pretty convincing, you know that your brain might be making up a lot of the stuff around you. Now, the brain doesn't really make up stuff, but it does fill in gaps all the time, all day, every day. Reading neurology now, it's just amazing. Parts we can't see, the brain fills in parts that we don't understand, the brain fills in and changes paradigms so that the sensory information we're getting is created by the brain a lot of the time. But look, we all know that sane people can get together and describe an experience close enough that we know we weren't all you know, we we know there's a reality, but it seems super important to me to realize that Kant was not just whistling Dixie. The brain is bringing time and space to the experience. And yeah. that means that this entire experience is constructed. Um, if a fruit fly can live in one day and there are animals that outlive us, the you know, what is a turtle thinking that's... 400 years old. What right. what are these, you know, where are we in all of this? And yeah, I think um psychedelics is one way of getting to know how much the brain elongates time, shortens time, changes the way we feel about ourselves and other people. I do think you can get all of that in other ways, but yeah, uh it is an expedient way to get there.
0: So I want to I, I like something that I came away with after reading your book that uh, I have fascination about is like your formation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we've, we've, we've touched on it a bit, you know, talking about your childhood, being raised in a, a Jewish household, but your parents were kind of hippies. What did you call it? Atreist, uh, right. you know, no Christmas tree. Right. Your, your mom was more of a believer than your dad. And Correct. then at age 12, you have a kind of epiphany where you're like, uh yeah. ah. yeah. what, what instigated the epiphany at age 12?
1: Uh, I describe it in the book because I have found it described in other people's books. I believe that young people, adolescents in particular, uh, have this experience, and it's not unusual for it to be raised by just some very small piece of beauty. And for me, it was this slant of light that went through the curtains in this curly cue way. I there's no rational way of why, in that moment, I suddenly realized I could have been born anywhere and I would believe other things. It was, I could have been born anywhere. I didn't, I wasn't necessarily me. I wasn't necessarily my parents' daughter. I wasn't necessarily, this wasn't my house. I could have been anywhere. And that meant that the things I believed were looser suddenly and I'm sure because I knew that my father was an atheist. My mother was sort of in charge of our of, of us in that way, and she believed, and and uh, you know, I believed. I believed in, Ju- as, in it, Judaism, in God. I believed that there was a God up there, and yes, I believed in Judaism, though the version that we had was pretty light, and uh, it it was it, it it was constant. It wasn't one of those things where you know it's only. Twice a year, you remember that you're Jewish. We we did things throughout the year, but it wasn't. uh, We certainly didn't go to every Friday night to services, but every once in a while, my mother would drag us all to services. And uh, yeah, it's funny. I, I I had a science fiction book in my prayer book, and I was reading it, and the rabbi came over and said, "How are you guys doing?" And I said, "I don't believe in God." And he said, "That's fine. Just you know, join us for like." He just didn't didn't he didn't flinch. And that it was really, but I didn't mention that in the book. But the, but the book is full of little stories. I'll tell you, for one thing, when I read a book, um, you know, I might not want to read a whole biography of somebody's religious experience or read a whole book about a certain religious idea. But I love reading a book that kind of switches between them. Like, I want a book that's telling me about biology to every once in a while break in and have a friendly voice talking to me about. A sort of real world experience of it, and and because I like that sort of thing, I like my books to have a personal aspect, and if they're personal, I like them to have a subject matter aspect. I like to learn stuff. There are lots of biographies where they teach you a lot of stuff while they're going, and I read them. And so this book is, uh, it tells you some of my secrets, and it tells you some of my stories, and you know I dug deep, and if when you're writing poetry, you know, you might be writing something good when you start to be worried that you're telling too much, that you're showing too much, that it's all out there. And I let myself have that same rule. I didn't, I didn't tell the kind of secrets that people um, might think of as like a tell all book. But yeah, I, I I told you that there's a, a little bit of a formula to each chapter. And in each chapter, at least in one place, I would make sure that I tried to tell a story about how I came to be who I am in, in thinking these thoughts. Um, there's one chapter where I tell about I was in France and I was maybe 20 and had no money, just a student abroad. And I met this German woman and we had very little in common, but we both wanted to go to Paris. She was a little older than me. Uh, I think I needed her company to be brave enough to go. And we went, we visited. And then on the way back, we, we were in this little compartment. Nobody else was around. We were both lying on each of, you know, on the bench uh, uh, and looking out the windows. France would go by and it got darker and darker. And she knew I was Jewish and she was the first German I'd ever really met. And mm. I, um, she asked, I was a little frightened. I mean, you know, I, I wasn't frightened of her. I mean, I'm a sane person, but it was a weird experience for me. Sure, yeah. Um, And so we're lying there, and she asks me to teach her a Hebrew song. We'd already been singing. That's what you do when you don't speak the same language. Uh, that's So I when I went there, it was like for kids, like people, it was a cheap place to learn French. And so we didn't have a shared language, though people had a little English, you know. But uh, so we would sing because, you know, somebody would have what, a guitar. What, what,
0: what would you sing? What would you sing? You
1: know, la la la, la la So all the Beatles songs, all the European kids knew the Beatles songs. Um, right, sure. Any song that had a lot of la 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 kind of or <laughs> la la las. Yeah. And everyone, you know, sings a sweet Caroline. They know the w- little bits of words and whatever they had. And so, yeah, that was, you know, we were young and that's what you do. And I was like kind of scared to teach her like a Jewish song to teach to this German woman. And I teach her this song and we're singing it. And and she says to me, I have to tell you something I've never told anyone. I was terrified. I thought it was going to be something against Jews. And she said that she wasn't German. Her parents have been lying for her whole life. She's Jewish Hungarian. And they've been hiding from the Nazis and they just never... Went back, and that she'd never told anyone.
0: So wait. So I'm. Lo- she was from Hungary, and she and her family had moved into Germany to hide.
1: I don't know the whole story. I just know that who she really was was Jewish. She'd never told anybody. Here, I thought in this little train compartment, this poetic thing is happening i'm the victim lady she's from the win- that that the vicious side we're watching france go by we're young we didn't do any of this i'm right you know i'm having these feelings and then suddenly this confession means that all of that was happening in maria all of it she was both sides and she was not my my captor she was not scary anymore how could that have happened in a three-second conversation that if she hadn't felt close to me at that moment, I'd have never known? Everybody is walking around with things that if you knew them, if you knew that that big guy coming towards you was frightened of water and couldn't bear to go near the ocean, you might just... But he is. I'm telling you, everybody's got weird stuff. Not everybody's pretending not to be Jewish, but the point, that perspective shift... And, and then I, I say in the book that only the perspective shift is the big point. It's, it's me realizing over and over that I don't know, but that, that I already have a lot of the information. I just It takes empathy and a certain kind of poetic generousness to keep remembering that people are more complex than what you think when you first see them. And that's the other thing poetry gives you. Reminds you that other people exist because you can really hear someone trying to reach out and talk to you. That's another thing I've tried to do in the book. To you know, finding that voice where I could speak basically as I'm speaking to you now, but with the best lines that I came up with over eight or nine years. You know, being the ones that survive, but trying to find a way to 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 let the poetic voice that I find most delicious and delightful that comes out of me when I can get in that place. I really tried to make to allow the prose to retain that kind of poetry, and and I feel in that way that I, I succeeded. And that feels incredibly precious to me because my other books, I care tremendously about how they sounded. And when I read them back, I can see that there's all this poetic stuff in them. But this book is a whole different level of allowing myself to speak with, um, with all my poetic and, you know, all my jokes and all my personal stories all, all in there too. But it's a book of information also, you know, it's going to tell you, yes, there are you know the, the all you know many religions have a death holiday where you celebrate death and everybody who's dead you mourn all your dead and you can also worry about your own mortality in that moment at a funeral we are all thinking about ourselves but we're not supposed to be Right? Right, right. We're and supposed I was to say. think about that
0: guy. But But I think I think I think like Dia de los Muertos is a great tradition. I wish we right. had some something I wish we had something
1: Well, Halloween isn't bad. Halloween isn't bad. Yeah. Right. And and it depends how you use it, like so many of these things. I'm saying in the book, you know, everybody's doing a sort of mild version. You can up the poetic value of yours just by sort of remembering this is a holiday about death. Most of these like, okay, there's, you know, sexy nurse and sexy devil, but <laughs> there's also a lot of zombies, a lot of car accident victims. Why are we all dressing up dead? I always love a, a ghoulish costume. I will tend towards a ghoulish, I, I mean, since I was very young, you know, paint my face white and be ghoulish on Halloween. Halloween's one of my favorite holidays and my family loves it too. So we really do it up. Um, That doesn't mean I always put that much energy into a costume, but sometimes I do. We've gone to comic-con all, all four of us dressed completely insanely. And uh, yeah, I like dressing up and I like confronting, having to confront the, the death in that way. When you're aware of it, when you say to yourself, these people may not realize it, but they have dressed up as if they were dead to you know, it's so interesting that when we die, we paint ourselves to look alive, right?
0: <laughs> we don't do it, but yeah, I get your, I we have your it, point. We have it done. We have yeah. It
1: done. Yeah. <laughs> Which, of course, only goes back to about Lincoln, because uh, they wanted a, his casket to be able to travel all over the United States, so they sort of invented mortuary science to do well, that.
0: Well, but yeah. remember like in Victorian times, I've seen these kind of macabre photos. Oh, yeah. They, they used to photograph the dead, right? Sure. Like and in Victorian times. People and, and... Wore,
1: wore brooches of dead people's hair in, in beautiful arrangements and... All sorts of relationships with the dead that we don't have. There's been stuff written on how they hid sex and we hide death.
0: Yeah. What do you think happens when we die? Do you have a defined feeling about it?
1: Sure. Um, I have a certainty that I'm an animal and that I'm in the same basic family as the, you know, the ants and the trees and the stars. And the idea that something with consciousness should then go on to continue that consciousness just seems like misguided wishful thinking, not even clever wishful thinking. I'm not really interested in forever. Is anyone, you know, really fully living or are they walking back and forth from the TV and the computer and the refrigerator and how many thousands of years do they want to do that for? Wouldn't it be more interesting to intensify the experience of the moment that we're in than to in some way imagine that it would do us any good to do this for longer? I think death wakes you up. I don't like it. Don't get me wrong. If I push a button and I get to live another couple hundred years, I'm pushing the button. But there isn't a button. I don't like that I don't like that uh, someone I love is very sick right now. I am not cool with it, but it's the situation. And I I much prefer not reality, but poetic reality, that love lasts, that it really lasts. that, that Like
0: beyond, beyond death, you mean?
1: Love lasts beyond death, sure. But I also... Want to say this that I think the human story is meaningful, even without God watching. Remember how, with God watching, it seems meaningful. God's watching all the stuff we're doing. It's must. It has that meaning. Well, okay. If God's not watching, we are. We're watching each other. Boy, are we watching each other? So we're certainly not alone. Say, billion of us. And we have our cameras out. We are watching. It matters. It matters as much as it used to. You know, interrogate how God watching could have mattered in a way that taking away God makes the story of humanity matter less. It doesn't. I understand that it doesn't hook up to anything, but it's only a kind of short-sightedness that makes us sort of desperate for something more permanent than the human experience. It's thousands of years it's enough for us. The sun is going to eat the earth in billions of years. Forget about it. It's so far away that it's as good as not happening. We have to forget about it. The world will continue. We're part of something beautiful. And when we hear each other uh, across the abyss of a moment, space, time, that's the stuff, man. That's it. Reaching out and somehow connecting. And yeah, I, I've, well, the code poem that I found that I decided to explore at first, I thought it was going to be one of many. And when I started, you know, whittling down, I came to this strange poem called The Choir Invisible by George Eliot, Marianne Evans, 19th century novelist and poet who's still very much read as a novelist and the choir invisible is a phrase I first heard in a Monty Python skit Uh, this parrot has gone on to the choir invisible and um when I saw that it was the title of this poem I looked it up I was sure I had always thought it was a religious term choir invisible no she made it up as a counter-religious term she was an atheist and uh did a lot of work Translating atheists into—I mean, she—she she was a, a, she was amazing. And this poem, look, it's not the best poem in the world by the things I call a good poem. The kind of, it—it's it, not, it doesn't shine as invoking mystery. It's a more talky poem, but it turned out to have so much of an effect on me. She, the choir invisible is. She's saying around you at any given moment, if you're listening to music, how many people worked hard their whole lives adding something so that it added up to the music you're listening to? The choir invisible are the people around you who made the paper clips, designed the books, made the light. The, everybody who came before us, many of them fought right? For their invention or their ideals to go forward. And we're the beneficiaries of so many tiny decisions, many of them of kindness, just of kindness, right? That somebody took care of some generation enough so that it comes down to us. Just that poem, reading it over, thinking about it, writing about it, has given me more of a sense of personal meaning than I had before. Yeah, I feel well, more good about it all.
0: Well, I could talk to you all day. I uh, I loved reading your book, and we had again we had a conversation several years ago. I loved reading "Stay," your book about uh, suicide, a kind of a philosophical philosophical take on it, uh, which I've recommended to people through the years. And I just congratulate you because I know this took you a while. And it's a deeply personal. I mean, they're they're all deeply personal, but this one may be this a little one's bit the more so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So congratulations to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk.
1: Thanks. I love talking to you. It's real interesting. Great time.
0: All right, you guys. There we have it. That was my conversation with Jennifer Michael Hecht, author of The Wonder Paradox, Embracing the Weirdness of Existence and the Poetry of Our Lives. You can find Jennifer on the internet at jennifermichaelhecht.com. She also has a Facebook page. She is on Instagram and she is also on Twitter. Her handle there is at Freud Einstein. One more time. The book is called The Wonder Paradox available now from FSG. Go get your copy right away. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Please support this show. If you love this show, you can do that over at Patreon dot com slash other ppl pod Patreon p a t r e o n dot com slash other ppl pod if you would like to get some other people merchandise a t shirt a sweatshirt a onesie for your newborn child just go to other scroll down look for the t shirt if you would like to sign up for my free once a week email newsletter sign up at otherppl.com or bradvesty.com if you would be so kind to rate and review this podcast, wherever you listen to this podcast, I would appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, wherever you listen. The other people podcast has a YouTube channel. Did you know that you can watch this show? You can watch my conversation with Jennifer Michael hacked over on YouTube, search for the show by name, other PPL. And when you get there, hit the subscribe button. It's free. The other people podcast has a social media presence, on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. The handle on Twitter is at OtherPPL. I post video clips regularly from these conversations, so check that out. If you would like to email me, the address for the show is letters at Let me know what you think. And if you would like to read my latest novel, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. Again, it is called Be Brief. And tell them everything. So, next up, a new craft work episode. My guest is Gina Frangello, one of my old pals and a very gifted writer. We're going to be talking about POV. So, stay tuned.